Hello and welcome to the 14th episode of the Military Medicine Podcast, hosted by Matt Kane and myself, James Coote. In this episode, we're really excited to host Dr. Eric Topol, cardiologist, but also three times best-selling author of books on the intersection of healthcare and technology, the latest of which is Deep Medicine, which I highly recommend you read. We really hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you do, please leave us a review and a five-star rating to help others find the podcast. Thanks. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Topol. Uh, before we dive, in, dive into the meat of the episode, I think it would be great to learn uh, a little bit more about how you got here. So can you tell us a little bit about your career so far? Well, it's been kind of meandering. Uh, you know, I, I started out um, in cardiology, and uh, that was back in the mid-'80s uh, as an interventional cardiologist, opening up arteries and brain stents. And then I got back to my roots, which was in college and genetics. And so back uh, in the mid-'90s, I started, you know, getting back to that, which is – I guess I, you'd say my true love. Uh, and then I followed up on that, realizing that uh, as we got to sequence the genome in the early 2000 uh, time period, that um, genomics wasn't going to be enough and that we needed other orthogonal ways to understand human beings. And that's how I got into the digital side. And so for the last 14 years at Scripps Research, translational research, uh, we've been working on different ways to understand human beings at multiple levels. Wow. And what do you give uh, most credit to for your success? Do you have a, a mantra, a, a neurostimulator, or you just don't sleep? Well, lunacy would probably be high on the list. You know? <laughs> uh, but no, I've had a lot of great inspirational people in my life that I'm so indebted to. Um, you know, for cardiology, uh, when I was in med school, Arthur Moss, and also then really kind of Chatterjee and UC San Francisco. Both of them have passed, but they both had a measurable uh, inspiration to me. Um, and, you know, and I think, uh, you know, I'm very lucky because I, I have a very supportive family that lets me loose to do, you know, pursue what I want, hibernate, write books, whatever, you know. So I, I'm just, you know, really fortunate. Do they share your passion for AI? I, I mean, my, my other half, when I mention the word AI, her eyes glaze over and, and, and there's that's very quickly the end of the conversation. Do they share your passion? Yeah, I think I've got them electrified, <laughs> you know, persuaded, uh, if you will. But, you know, I think that the issue here is that, yeah, there's been kind of an overhype of AI and people are kind of getting, you know, tired of it, but they won't be when it really kicks in. Uh, and, and that's going to happen in the years ahead. And it'll really, in many ways, serve as a rescue for some of the things that really us today. Yeah, I can't wait to delve a little bit deeper into that in the podcast. And just finally, to round off sort of our intro section, do you actually ever have any time off? And what do you do, for example, on like a Sunday <laughs> afternoon? Well, I have two wonderful grandchildren and a third one on the way. And uh, that's what I like to do is spend time with them, just playing with them and laughing with them. Um, that's become you know, my favorite thing, really. Uh, they, they live just a few minutes away from us, so we're really, really lucky. And, uh, you know, I, I do like to be outdoors, and that's why it's really great living here in the San Diego region, um, whether it's going hikes and walks and things like that. So, you know, we, we're, we've got really great uh, weather and a family that's a tight-knit unit, so that makes it easy. Brilliant. 
All right, so now we'll kick off with uh, the, the podcast main with our sort of, we have a little signature section at the start of quick fire questions that you're only allowed to answer with one word or a very short phrase. Ooh, we'll put you a okay. bit of slack over one word. Okay. Uh, so first up, on what scale will AI redefine healthcare as we know it? Seismic. What AI can't you live without today in your clinical practice? It, it hasn't hit really yet to give you a uh, image interpretation as close as I can get. And who is ahead in medical AI, the US, the UK or China, and who will be in five years? Uh, today, it's, it's a close uh, race. Uh, in five years, it will unlikely be anyone else but China. And if you had a magic wand, what one barrier to AI adoption would you magic away? Uh, well, it would be um, getting rid of the, the noise, the, 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 the weak research, the things that are misleading, the hype, all these things that get in the way of, um, of the signal. And then finally, what is the secret behind getting healthcare professional buy-in for uh, AI innovations in healthcare? The best thing is to compelling data mm. where you have either randomized trials or rigorous prospective work that proves unequivocally that this helps patients and makes life better for the healthcare workforce. That's what we desperately need. Okay. Compelling data. That's the two words. Brilliant. Yeah, you're slightly over the one word there, but I'll give you that. It was, <laughs> it was a big question. If I just said data, that wouldn't help. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Brilliant. Well, the rest of the podcast, you're welcome to answer with as many words as you like. It doesn't have to be one word from now. You'll be glad to know. So I thought it was good. We have quite a wide range of listeners to the podcast, um, all types of healthcare professionals from medics, paramedics, nurses, doctors. And I guess a lot of them um, will have some experience of AI, perhaps practically, and, and some will have, have none whatsoever. So I guess where we should start is, if I was a senior physician or nurse or, or medic who knew nothing about AI and was inherently skeptical of technology, how would you explain it to me? Well, you know, I think the key is that um, we're using uh, the deep learning form of AI which is relatively new in the last decade, to take complex inputs and to be able to interpret them at levels as good or better than expert humans. And so this is something that is complementary to uh, clinicians who have really good judgment and experience and context, but this is seeing things essentially that we could never see or do things that we could never do. So the promise from that is what machines can do um, that humans can complement so well. Uh, and that's what really is a pathway to a whole more improved form of medicine, especially when we have a tsunami of data on each patient that's emerging rapidly. And so it's been kind of around as a field since the 1950s, at least conceptually. Why has it particularly come to prominence in the last sort of half decade, decade sort of time period? 
Well, the key is that up until really, you know, the last several years, we didn't have a form of AI that was conducive to taking in all this medical data, whether it be images, um, uh, speech, uh, text. So we just didn't have a way to do it. Uh, and it's been out there for many decades, but it was really the, the work that from Jeffrey Hinton and his colleagues, um, uh, Jan LeCun on convolutional neural networks, um, and, and others that just can radically change the opportunity here. Mm. And what you've mentioned some uh, sort of applications of it, but what is AI particularly good at and what can't it do? Well, it has the features that are the ones that humans can't do. That is, it can look at an immense data uh, set and, and interpret it at warp speed mm. and much more accurately. And plus it doesn't get distracted. Like, you know, humans get distracted. Uh, it can get sick like humans, you know, we know that algorithms and software can get sick, but overall it does have a, a remarkable performance uh, that is very different than people. So that's what is the, the main thing to bank on is that if we do this right, we can really take up the efficiency, productivity, accuracy, you know, the speed, all these things that we need in medicine to take care of patients better. <clears throat> I remember one example from your book that I found quite compelling was that uh, you, you talked about a chest radiograph interpreter, which could get through a million chest radiographs in 24 hours. And I just thought that was an absolutely staggering number. Now, there were other problems, I think, with that particular implementation. I'm not sure it fit the process perfectly, but certainly the sheer quantity and rate which it could get through that quantity of data was staggering. So can you give us a couple of examples where AI is already beginning to transform practice now? Well, it, it's mainly in imaging. So um, as you mentioned, uh, any type of... Uh, whether it's x-rays, like a chest x-ray, or CT scans, particularly brain CT, um, uh, MRI, where we're seeing now, which is of practical importance, uh, is that you could get an image much faster. So an MRI, if you ever had an MRI, you could be in the machine for an undue period of time. It's not comfortable. But the fact that you can accelerate that markedly and get better quality images, for example, with less Tesla um, uh, a resolution. Mm -hmm. So what, not only are we getting the, the images uh, interpreted better as a screening through AI algorithms, but we're also doing it for the patients and for the work through, you know, throughput at a far a better clip. So that's where you see the first wave of AI, mm -hmm. but it's also, of course, having effects across every specialty of medicine. It's just in the early stages right now. And so, sort of following on from that, where do you think we'll be in 20 years' time? How will the average day of a clinician be, be changed? Well, there's what I hope, and then there's the potential reality. The hope is that we then enhance greatly the human connection so that there will be no keyboards and no data clerk functions for doctors and nurses and clinicians. Uh, rather, the, the time together, physically together, would be for important matters, deep discussion, you know, thorough exam, the things that are the basic uh, uh, components of, of medical practice and why 
that trust and that, that human connection has always been what medicine's all about. So restoring that is the dream. It can be fulfilled. But the one thing we have to override is the business side of medicine. That is the administrators who are the overlords, much more so in the U.S., but still around the world, where they're dictating, you know, how to, how, how much time you have with patients and, you know, see more patients or read more slides or read more scans and whatever unit time. And we have to turn that back. And that's going to take, you know, a real activism and solidarity to not let that happen. And so we talked about it from the clinician's perspective. What in 20 years time, what will the experience look like from the patient's perspective, aside from hopefully having more time with their clinician? Well, the patient, I think, would love it just because um, they're now getting this particular attention and they've been unleashed. So I'm not talking about a doctorless world, but for many routine, non-serious matters, they have algorithmic support. So today, the first one in the U.S. that was a deep learning algorithm for patients was for the uh, smartwatch to be able to diagnose abnormal heart rhythm. Yeah. Well, that's just the beginning. Now we're seeing, like, for example, in the U.K., eventually it'll get to the U.S., people to use uh, an algorithm to diagnose the urinary tract infection accurately. And then there's also now skin lesions and skin cancers of any type, whereby algorithms will quickly get at least as good as physicians. So you have a long list of common things where you could either bypass a doctor or, you know, not have to call on to a, a, a nurse or doctor until you're needing a prescription or there's something uncertain or that sort of thing. So that we can shift things. I'm going to talk to see the doctor now because I've got an important matter, important questions. So a lot of the, the, the small stuff, which is basically a lot, I mean, they're talking about the vast majority of things. If you look down a list of the top reasons that people go see a doctor, things that are on the list of things like skin uh, rashes and lesions, and, uh, urinary tract infections, ear infections for children, you know, all these things are going to be algorithmic. Uh, now, not everyone will be comfortable with that. Some people don't want to deal with making a diagnosis through a smartphone in their algorithm, but most people will because it's easy, convenient, cheap. Um, you know, it fulfills all the things that we would like. And so we talked a bit about the opportunities. What do you think are the biggest risks with AI tools that clinicians will need to be aware of? And is it losing their jobs for any of them? I don't think it's losing any jobs, but I do think it's going to change the, the role. You know, the, the, the profile of clinicians will be very different. And I think it has to be much better because right now we have a global uh, epidemic of burnout, which is only worse in the, in the, in the COVID-19 era, of course. Mm. So we have to get better. Uh, that there isn't any question about that. But, you know, I think that the responsibilities are different. Right now, the burden of... Uh, keyboards and data code functions will be uh, will, there'll be liberation that all can be done through AI through natural language processing machine learning there shouldn't be any keyboard need in an exam room seeing a patient or at the bedside uh, in a hospital uh, making rounds that's preposterous we already have it's already being you know shown to be working in, in many places around the world so it'll be different it should be much better if we um, steer this, if we let others tell us how to manage 
it might not work very well. Mm. We'll come on a little bit to that a bit later on because I'm really fascinated to hear who you think will drive that technological change if if we don't, whether it will be the big four tech companies or or governments or who. So I guess just following on from the the, the point about clinicians losing their jobs and, and the fact that you don't think that will be the case, healthcare economics is, is largely a zero-sum game because health spending usually is a fixed proportion of GDP over time. So we'll invest more in tech startups or, or tech companies in the AI space. Who, who do you think is going to lose out? Well, um, you know, I think the tech companies are needed because if you look within the healthcare world, technology is pathetically weak. And, uh, you know, it's actually kind of amazing that, you, that in, a, in the average hospital room, an alarm goes off 100 times a day. Uh, unnecessarily. I mean, false alarm. We haven't fixed that. So we need help. We need help. And uh, we know that, you know, the tech companies, uh, whether it's the large tech titans or lots of startups and innovative forces around the world, they're really making a difference. And that's how we're going to see AI, you know, get um, cultivated. It's important. So we, we need to, um, if you will, invest in that, whereby when there's algorithms that have been evaluated prospectively, they've been validated, then they're brought into the real-world setting. The, the issue there is we can't ever let down because if one of these algorithms has a glitch, whether it's because of an adversarial attack, a malicious attack, or just because software can have a glitch, you can hurt a lot of people really quickly. So what people don't understand at this point is just because you have this magical algorithm, it's not quite magical because it could not work. And so if you don't keep your guard up and have it under constant prospective surveillance, we could see a lot of people um, be injured and that would be horrendous. And that would shake up the entire field. There are other things, of course, that are issues like the bias of algorithms it's not so much the algorithm as it is the data inputs. And so we've already seen some flaring examples of that problem. We have to be very careful that we don't have data inputs that are already embedded with all sorts of human bias. Um, so there, there, there are a lot of things we have to grapple with, but they're all known issues that we have to be uh, prepared for. And I guess to inoculate ourselves against that, uh, our workforce's skill set needs to change quite dramatically in terms of at least having an appreciation of how to evaluate uh, these tools and algorithms and how to um, sort of validate them and make sure they're used appropriately. Now, in your 2019 report on the NHS's digital future, uh, you wrote that within 20 years, 90% of all jobs in the NHS will require some element of digital skills. How do you think we're going to achieve achieve that well you're really lucky in the uk as far as i know it may be kind of singular of the major uh, countries uh on the planet because you have this health education england mm. um we don't have anything like that in fact i never even heard of it before i got involved with the nhs review so the point being is you have put in significant resources at nih nhs to do education and training of your workforce. Mm. Uh, other countries that I know of don't have such a wing of their national health system. 
it's quite unique. And so, you, for example, you have been the world leader in the UK for genomics. And not only in the research side, but because of the health education in England, you've trained a lot of your workforce to use genomics and implement it. Mm. Most of the world, certainly the US, is not in any position for that. So we need to emulate their HEE from the UK here. We have nothing like it. We have these weak postgraduate education things and requirements to go to some course and, you know, nothing that's organized. And people do have to understand the nuances of algorithms. They do have to understand, you know, what they can do, what they can't do. And if we don't get everybody up to speed, uh, we're not either taking advantage of this uh, technology or helping in terms of its surveillance. Uh, these are really uh, key issues in our care of patients because our care of patients is going to be largely uh, bolstered, mm. but also interdependent on our interactions with machines. Yeah, That's very unlike today where our main interaction with machines are pathetic electronic health records. And it's been highly disappointing. You've not an abject failure. But tomorrow, that is years from now, we'll, over, we'll, we'll supersede that bad start in the digital connect. And we'll be increasingly comfortable and reliant on machine support. So to bridge that educational gap, obviously, one thing people can do is get your book. <laughs> but what else would you recommend they do is there like where do you get your knowledge from is there a particular blog you follow is there a news site which is particularly good or would you recommend that doctors nurses medics listening to this perhaps gain some practical experience of learning to code by taking one of the many free online MOOCs well there's several ways to go after this um, we uh, have this thing called dr. penguin don't ask me why we call it that but it's a weekly email with the top approximately five papers of the week on AI and medicine. And we've been doing that for 50 weeks now and we'll continue doing that. So anybody can go to Dr. Penguin and, and get that on the list. Um, another way to do it is following um, the journals that particularly emphasize AI and medicine. Uh, you know, they include things like uh, nature medicine, nature machine intelligence, uh, nature biomedical engineering, uh, nature digital medicine, um, you know, those are some of the ones, uh, Lancet, Digital Health. These are some of the best journals that feature articles in AI and medicine. Um, another way to do it is, um, the, what you got, what you mentioned, which is the ability to get a little experience directly. So my friend in the UK, Pierce Keane and his colleagues published a wonderful article, uh, about, um, how clinicians who've never coded in their life didn't even know what coding is. And, you know, within hours, they got facile with um, working with AI algorithms for various imaging, you know, films and skin legions and whatnot. So reading that article and getting some, you know, actual direct experience would help everybody. It doesn't mean you need to be an expert. Just to play around with these and understand data inputs and, um, and the structure you know, the, the uh, artificial neurons and the outputs and, you know, just get, get familiarity. I think that's helpful. Brilliant. One, one last thing is being able to critique the literature, mm. you know, to be able to read an article about AI 
and not fall for it. You know, typically they're the, the AI algorithm outperformed the doctors. Well, no, that's actually not true. Uh, and in fact, it shouldn't be framed that way. It should be framed, what did it do on top of the doctor's story? So there are lots of issues about reading AI medical articles, and there's a few good reviews um, about that uh, that, have occurred, that have appeared, and I highly recommend reviews on how to be, uh, you know, get a critique of AI and medicine articles. Brilliant. That's a fantastic load of resources for us to go after. So thank you for that. I'd like us to delve really deeply into two companies that come up in your book, if that's okay, because I think they're quite illustrative of some of the biggest themes in deep medicine. Uh, the first one is um, iCarbonX. Um, what does their work involve and, and why do you think it's important? Yeah, that's really interesting. They came out with a big bang um, when I was writing the book whereby they had a huge amount of funding from China. Uh, they were basically planning on developing the virtual medical assistant, have every piece of data continuously uh, uh, captured and you know, ingested and processed and then fed back to you. So whether it be your genome or your gut microbiome or your, your physiome through sensors and you know, the entire medical literature, I mean, you know, basically. But they've gone quiet now. I don't know what they're doing, but that company had the first blueprint of what we are, what we need. Because if you had a way to process all your data, which I'm not sure we have that yet, because just deep learning may not be enough. We may need hybrid models to be able to work with all this data. But imagine that you were getting tips on your smartphone, as I outlined in the book, where you could actually prevent illnesses from ever occurring, or prevent things like an asthma attack or a seizure, or, you know, all sorts of things that are episodic because you're getting coached through your data, through your own data. But the fact that no human being could take all those data points from every different dimension and be able to basically make, uh, uh, understand it and, and, and make judgments and predictions. So, this is exciting. iCarbonX, uh, I don't know where they are right now. I asked my colleagues in China what's going on with them, and they couldn't tell me. So I, I suspect there's, they're, they're you know, at it, but I don't have an update for you beyond what's in the book. It's kind of fascinating, the whole principle. iCarbonX may or may not be the people that managed to boil the ocean with that. Regardless, it's going to take a long time, but I think it's fascinating how they're one company that's gone after it, where I think it was something like $600 million funding, yeah, a yeah. million people enrolled <laughs> collecting this phenomenal amount of, of, um, of, of data. It's just, just staggering. And, and someone will get there eventually, one presumes, or a group of companies. I agree. I the other company I wanted to delve into as well, which we've already slightly alluded to, is, is iFlyTech. And, and I just wanted you to explain why you think their work and, and others in that field is important in relation to your notes summarizing. Yeah, I think this um, whole idea of liberation from keyboards um, is going to really take hold and it'll become, in the short term, become the, the, the clinician's best friend. The fact that you never have to do any typing and that you get these synthetic notes that are just so awesome and better than what's in the electronic records of today so that's going to be very popular, and, and uh, you know, there's a big race going on who's going to do that the best. It's not just companies in China. Microsoft is on it. Google's on it. 
20 different startups are on it. Um, but, you know, we'll get there. It, it's, it's already, I've seen some of the notes um, uh, that come out of that, and I, I'm very impressed. And the final bit, just in this section about sort of some of the Chinese startups, you wrote a paper about um, China-US collaboration uh, last year in, in August, uh, which was called It Takes a Planet, which I'd recommend our, our listeners have a look at. And you wrote it with Kai-Fu Lee. Can you explain what your central thesis was in that and, and just dip into really briefly federated learning? Because I think that's fascinating. Yeah. No, that's, if it wasn't for federated AI, we couldn't have written that piece because we would have been a laughing stock. But what federated AI does is it allows for the processing of data um, at any given place without transferring the data. So basically, um, it's a way to um, ensure privacy, security of, of a data set. So the way that this could move forward is if we were smart, if we really were looking after human health, as a planet, we'd all work together. We'd all work together whereby all people's data, we'd learn from each other. And for example, set up a massive planetary infrastructure where every data that's relevant on each person would be put into this, and of course, anonymized, uh, federated AI with homomorphic encryption and all the safeguards so that it wasn't gonna be identified. But then, what you have is if someone is at risk for a very important condition, then we learn from everyone else in our species about how to prevent that condition. Or if you have, let's say, a serious cancer, we match up for your digital twins mm. as to how can we treat that the best and get the best outcome rather than relying on these clinical trials of all these people that have nothing to do with you. But rather now we have your twins that are matched in every possible which way, you know. So nearest neighbor analysis is another form of AI. So what we had conceived, Kai-Fu Lee and I, was that if, if we set the stage where historic U.S.-China working together and then bring all the other countries, mm -hmm. obviously the U.K. would be a front runner. There's great uh, AI work being done there, I know. But, you know, many other countries would want to join. If we, if we could basically do that, we could get this planet um, campaign going. But, you know, there's lots of other issues now that are gotten in the way uh, of that. I hope we'll come back to that because I still am convinced that human health um, overrides inter-country tensions. We all should be interested in health uh, and, and pooling our resources, our, our uh, capabilities. But without countries working together, we're missing out on, you know, important data that will help uh, people's health. I agree. And I think one of the things I found interesting in the paper was how uh, in Western countries, we're typically going to underserve some of our minority populations because our algorithms are going to be trained on Caucasians and those who are from ethnic minorities are going to be underserved because our algorithms won't be trained on their data. With federated learning, we can partner with other countries train our algorithms up on their more varied data sets and better serve our own population which i think is fascinating and definitely the way forward i think just to come into a final section dr tobar i really appreciate your time on this i thought we'd just wing sort of turn back around a little bit to the military i don't know whether you have any military experience but 
I guess uh, on the face of it, it's like many other large organizations, it's grappling with AI and, and, and is, is trying to embrace change with it. Where do you think the biggest opportunities for AI are in the military that, that sort of strike you? Well, there's, it's, uh, I think, extraordinary. I mean, why would you have human soldiers? Why, you know, the, the, the future of putting humans in combat is just, you know, you have to really question it. Um, but beyond that, where there shouldn't be any wars in combat, there's the ability to um, use sensors uh, and have continuous uh, AI uh, processing so that to know when a person uh, uh, in the military is um, predicting uh, an illness before it happens, uh, or if they are involved in military operations, to know, uh, you know, what their status is. So, I mean, there's lots of different ways that there's all the, the usual things that I, we've been talking about, the way that, you know, caring for patients and getting rid of keyboards and getting much better images, but there's special things that pertain to the military uh, that basically much more machine, robotic, non-human um, hardware and AI mm. to change the whole way that we think whether it's drones whether it's you know uh, uh, other non-humans uh, being put uh, in harm's way that that's really what's important we, we don't want to ever see more casualties of, of uh, anyone in the military it's, it's just not acceptable i agree and as we kind of go through that transformation if uh, you've obviously written the top report for the nhs after which NH nhsx was was born a 0.25 billion pound venture that's that's basically looking to to bring in a lot of the suggestions from your report if you had one minute with the head of the military what single bit of advice would you give him to sort of transform his organization from a tech perspective well i would just work you know closely intimately with the NHS X. I think that the talent and the ambition there to be the world leader, just like it has been in genomics. You said you're kind of inside the forest and you don't realize what the UK has done. Uh, you've shown the rest of the world how to you know, lead in the space of genomics. I actually believe you can do that in AI and digital. And I think the military uh, efforts and leadership combining with NHSX just sets that up for even more. So that's what I would recommend. Uh, okay, so sort of align with a with a leader in the class being the NHSX. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for that interview, Dr. Topol. That was absolutely brilliant. Um, I'm, on behalf of all the listeners as well, thanks so much for all the insights. Oh, you're very kind. I really enjoyed the discussion. Look forward to more in, in times ahead. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, if you did, please consider giving us a five-star review and subscribing. For healthcare professionals, don't forget to record your CPD.